I think when the average Calvin student looks at Grand Rapids, uh, they notice that it's segregated. They drive, you know, out the back door of Calvin down Lake Drive and down Franklin, and it gets very different between Franklin and Plymouth and Franklin and Eastern. And they just sort of think that happened by accident. And Rothstein's argument is it didn't. It didn't. It was shaped by intentional government policy. Welcome to The Nightly, a new podcast focused on events and issues in Grand Rapids specifically for the Calvin community. This is episode one. You just heard Professor Joe Kylema from Calvin's Sociology and Social Work Department. He's talking about The Color of Law, a book by Richard Rothstein. Rothstein was here in Grand Rapids in January. He gave a lecture based on the topic of his book at the New Urbanism Film Festival, and Professor Kylema introduced him. Yeah, so Rothstein's book, his premise is that in the United States, we often think of residential segregation as de facto, meaning that it happened largely by accident. No one's real fault. It's unfortunate. People are racist. But what are you going to do about it? And his argument is that we shouldn't think of it that way. We should think about it as de jure, meaning that it was done on purpose, intentionally. And in his argument, it was done by the federal government, um, starting with a series of housing policy decisions made as part of the New Deal. My name is Andrew Thomas. I'm a junior studying computer science and Chinese. Andrew took the interim class, doing justice in the city one kitchen cabinet at a time, taught by Professor Doldersma. According to the course description, the class combines the academic study of doing justice in central or inner cities with learning practical skills of stabilizing and improving stressed neighborhoods. It was focused on housing issues in Grand Rapids. For interim, Andrew's class read Rothstein's book. So is there a part in this book that stands out to you as particularly memorable? Yeah, the chapter that really stood out to me was the one on the violence that surrounded this issue. Um, In so many cases where people tried to integrate, there was violent opposition, which on one hand showed just the links that people were willing to go to Mm -hmm. um, to make sure segregation happened. Um, but was perhaps more disturbing than the violence was the government's inaction against it. Rothstein pulled out story after story after story um, of how police sat idly by, police participated, um, in all these really disturbing ways, because especially if we think about the government historically has failed to protect the rights of minorities, mm-hmm. but has done a little bit better job promoting universal safety. And, and there's just countless examples of places where they failed even in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that reading it really sort of moved me. All right. So did either the lecture or the film festival um, change anything about your ideas of Grand Rapids? So the book got me really fascinated to know what was the effect of all of these ideas here in Grand Rapids. Because he he shared stories from all over America, but I don't think West Michigan was ever brought up. Um, And in doing research on some of these ideas, I didn't realize how screwed up Grand Rapids was, both historically and continually. Um, We are still one of the most segregated cities in America, um, in the top half of all the lists. Um, And that's something, like, I've been here for three years now, and I had no idea. Um, And so it was just wild to me um, just how, like, close to home some of these hit. And and, and in the midst of being, especially in a place like Calvin College where we care so much about these things, that to to find out that we're living in a community that is very much broken and in pain because of some of these things was just, like, I don't know how I missed it Mm -hmm. (laughs) all this time. 
So here in Grand Rapids, uh, in 1937, the Homeowners Loan Corporation, which is a subsidiary of the Federal Housing Administration, the New Deal organization, put out a map of Grand Rapids. You can find it online. And uh, it sort of originates, the, along with other maps in the same period, the concept of redlining, that certain areas in the city are deemed risky. So the government comes along and creates these new policies that assume the risk for mortgages that are longer with lower down payments, lower interest rates. Now, the government is then assuming risk, so they want to study that risk, and that's where they produce these maps. They send people out to every community to try to determine um, where should we be backing mortgages? Where is it risky to do that? Uh, that seems like a good thing to do, but uh, and it is on the face of it. But what they did when they came into actual communities like Grand Rapids is they look around and they determined that uh, what they call racial inharm inharmonious racial groups are a problem, right? Racial harmony. And this becomes one of the primary markers for risk is, is there racial or the potential for racial inharmony? The neighborhood today that we would call Baxter, which is labeled on the 37 Homeowners Loan Corporation map as the Sherman Union neighborhood. Uh, neighborhood gets a D. It's colored red on the map. Um, and it's colored red on the map because there is infiltration, as it says, of Negroes percent substantial. Uh, therefore, risky. Therefore, we're not going to back mortgages in that neighborhood. You hop a couple blocks over and a couple blocks down, and you're in Ottawa Hills. Um, Ottawa Hills is labeled uh, on the Homeowners Loan Corporation map as the best residential neighborhood in the city, uh, populated by Native Whites executives. Ottawa Hills, best neighborhood in the city, green A. So that continues, right? <laughs> We're almost 100 years after this map. And uh, Baxter continues to be a uh, disinvested community, a community that tends to struggle. Ottawa Hills continues to be one of the most expensive neighborhoods in the city. And that's directly in line with, you know, we could debate about whether it's caused by, but uh, federal government policy decisions that were made in the 1930s under the New Deal that sort of calcified those uh, mortgage markets and made it harder for people in those areas to get mortgages. Um, and to have sort of upward mobility. The impact for citizens then is that most people's wealth in America is based on their home. So between the time that these laws were passed in the 1930s and the 1960s when we finally passed fair housing legislation, so um, 1932 to 1962 I think is the dates that I have. Fair housing wasn't until 68, but 62. 98% uh, of mortgages in the United States go to white Americans, resulting and today, 70% of white Americans owning their homes, less than 50% of African Americans or Latinx folks own their home. That's a huge disparity. Uh, and Rothstein's argument is grounded in deliberate federal policy. Back to Andrew, talking about Rothstein. So did you go to the lecture um, that he did at the Wealthy Street Theater? I did. Um, and did you learn anything new from his lecture there that was distinct from what you were learning from his book? But one thing that I did find particularly interesting from the lecture itself was there was a Q&A time at the end, um, and one lady um, shared her love for all the ideas but thought they were a little bit over-idealistic mm -hmm. um, and that America wasn't quite ready for... Um, some of the solutions that Rothstein had proposed. Um, 
and he very educatedly and politely refuted all of her sort of doubts um, and really made a strong claim for why he thought this was a possibility in America now mm -hmm. um, and why he specifically had hope despite all of this study, which is like, it's 300 pages of like straight depressing news. Um, and, and you see this guy talking about it. He's like, yeah, we can fix this. Like, mm -hmm. it's very doable. People are there. There's a sense of being ready to implement mm -hmm. some of these changes. Um, and so that's, that's what I found particularly interesting from mm -hmm. um, the, the lecture. Do you, were you compelled by um, his optimism? Uh, or did you f hold those same concerns that the lady um, who stood up in the Q&A... I'm an incredibly optimistic person, uh -huh. um, and so I could only naturally gravitate towards um, his optimism. And, and I think there certainly is going to isn't, or there will certainly be struggles um, to get to some of the ideals. Mm -hmm. um, like there, there's a room full of people there who are ready to do something mm -hmm. about it. So if we can, like Andrew says, get involved in a political way, why is that proving to be so difficult in GR? So housing policy in Grand Rapids is limited, unfortunately, by state policy. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you probably the most egregious example of this, or one of the ones that housing advocates are the most upset about. And that's what's called inclusionary zoning. Uh, inclusionary zoning is a, a policy proposal whereby any time a new development comes up, uh, multi-unit dwelling, uh, apartment building, you have to include a certain percentage of units of affordable housing rate based on uh, calculations, right? Usually area median income calculations. Mm -hmm. So in communities that have inclusionary zoning, they say, hey, great, you're building a new 60-unit uh, building. 15 of those units have to be accessible at 60% of area median income or below. Inclusionary zoning I mean it's going to be included in every new project that's developed. The state of Michigan has said, hey, municipalities, you can't pass those laws. Uh, we don't care if you want to. You can't, <laughs> um, which seems like an odd thing for a state to do. Uh, and I think that it is. But it's a, uh, that's, that's the reality we live in. So housing policy in, in a city like Grand Rapids is some, some of it's in our control and some of it is out of our control, unfortunately, and can only be done uh, taking care of at a state level. Um, my original question was, why don't you think more people pay attention to these issues in Grand Rapids? But yeah. it seems like, I mean, so there's that question. Why don't you think people pay more attention to these issues? But yeah. I also have a question based on what you've been saying so far. Do you think that some people pay attention to it and then others are just totally oblivious. So, you know, one of the things Rothstein makes clear is that housing policy, residential segregation has always been something that's disproportionately impacted low income communities of color and not just low income um, people of color in general. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Calvin students have often been largely removed from the city. They live in the Calvin bubble and people joke about the Calvin bubble and they think they're getting out of the Calvin bubble if they go to a coffee house on Wealthy, uh, but they don't really understand what the bubble is mm -hmm, or what mm -hmm. they're looking at or what they're participating in. Uh, they may think they're getting out of the bubble when in reality they're, they're extending the bubble of gentrification. <laughs> um, so it, it requires some historical awareness of this place um, and 
Calvin has often struggled with that. As an institution, we've continued to move to the edges of the city. Uh, so we started down by the railroad tracks in 1876. Uh, we move a little bit, then we move to the corner of Madison and Franklin, uh, which then becomes Grand Rapids Christian High, which then becomes the Department of Health and Human Services <laughs> after white flight. Uh, we moved from there to Franklin campus um, in the 20s. Uh, and then we move in 68, a year after race riots in the core, out to Knollcrest. Now, they did need new space, right? And it was going to be hard to remain where they were. But Calvin has unavoidably moved towards the edges of the community and struggled to remain invested in the community. And I think that's an, a historical track record that we have. Um, now, uh, why, why don't Calvin students um, think more about that, right? Uh, I think Calvin students are driven by their everyday concerns, right? They want to be close to campus, so they live mm -hmm. here. It's easier to get here. Uh, they're not living in mixed-income neighborhoods. They're not living in mixed-race neighborhoods to a large extent. Uh, partially, as Rothstein would say, because those neighborhoods are extremely hard to sustain in the way that we have constructed the United States. A lot of our policies have moved us away from even the possibility of mixed-income neighborhoods. Back to Andrew. Do you think that students should be more aware about housing issues in Grand Rapids, even if they're not from the city? So I just want to preface this answer with the fact that I'm not from Grand Rapids. Mm -hmm. I moved here for school, you know, three years ago, um, and I likely will move away after school. Like, I don't, I don't think I'm sticking around. Mm -hmm. um, but nonetheless, like, whether I like it or not, this city is home for me. Mm -hmm. um, like, this is where I've planted myself. Um, and I think there's just this responsibility and this joy in being present with the community that I'm now planted in, even if it's just temporary. So are you planning on using anything from your experience during interim or at the lecture um, to stay involved in Grand Rapids with these issues? And if so, how would you do that? So I think there's two sort of ways you can take this question. Um, one is your the factoring this information into your own decisions, specifically regarding housing. Um, and unfortunately for me, like I've signed all my leases for the rest of my time at Calvin. And so like, I don't get to, to do that um, mm -hmm. when, when thinking about choosing a house. Um, but the other part of it is, is sort of working intentionally, either volunteering or giving your money or just being a, a conscious sort of neighbor. Um, in pursuing restoration in that sort of way. Um, and I've done a lot of thinking, I've done a lot of praying about like, how do I, how do I respond to this injustice I've seen? Um, and I think um, specifically for me, like that's going to be primarily just like keeping myself up to date and being present with the situation um, and engaging in my neighborhood. If there are beneficial things I can be doing there, um, and then maybe um, one of the organizations we um, worked with does um, volunteer things every once in a while. Um, and so who knows, I might get involved there. But nonetheless, like, I want to stay informed. I want to be able to celebrate mm -hmm. when the community celebrates. I want to be able to mourn when they mourn mm -hmm. and just continue to be present in that way. And, like, that's, that's it, the bare minimum, I feel like. Again, like, I would be I'm ecstatic for people who would do more. Back to Kylama. So how do you think that Calvin students can lessen their impact 
on these kind of housing issues. Yeah, so I think Calvin talks a lot about intentionality with community, and I think it requires some intentionality. Intentionality about where you select to live and why, and some thinking about how that may be impacting people who live around you. And that can be really simple stuff, like am I being a good neighbor and shoveling my sidewalks for other people? Uh, am I keeping my, my bus stop open for folks? And it can be thinking about when I move into a neighborhood that I like because it's close to this coffee shop, who am I interacting with? Am I talking to just the other Calvin students who live down the block? Am I getting to know longer-term residents? Uh, what are they saying about uh, the house that I live in? Who used to live in the house that I lived in? How long has this been a rental house for college students? I think just having some curiosity and some humility about how you move into and live in space um, can go a long way towards not alienating folks. Um, so it's not all about um, not being involved in certain areas. It's about how you're involved in certain areas. Uh, there's certainly lots of work that a lot of great nonprofits are doing, uh, places like ICCF, I know you're talking to ICCF, are doing. You can support that work. You can come alongside that work, uh, whether with donations or with time, uh, and try to respond to housing in that way. But I think um, first it's about intentionality. It's about thinking what you're going to do. It's about thinking who you're voting for and what they're going to do about affordable housing, what they're going to do that might help people uh, improve their wages. <laughs> the planning commission meets downtown, you know, every other week, once a week, and they make all sorts of decisions that impact low-income people in this community. We can be involved in those sorts of groups. We can, we can be present in the places where it is actually meaningful. Why do you think people from all walks of life in Grand Rapids, not just Calvin students. Yeah. Why do you think they should care? Yeah, housing housing dominates so many other things in our lives are dependent on housing. Um, Rothstein makes this argument, and I'm convinced by it. Rothstein's an education scholar. He's not a housing scholar originally. He studied inequality, inequity, uh, disparities between black students and white students in achievement. And after studying that for decades, he was increasingly convinced that one of the things going on here is segregation, that it's hard to have schools when people are segregated racially and by income or both. Um, and that's always going to impact their outcomes. And I think that's the case for a lot of things. So whether you care about education uh, and the achievement of students, whether you care about health and public health with things like lead poisoning and asthma, there are more lead poisoned kids in the 49507 zip code in Grand Rapids and in the entire city of Flint, all from paint. There's lead in the pipes in Flint, there's lead in the paint everywhere, but in low-income communities where slumlords aren't painting the walls, it gets into kids' uh, systems and poisons them permanently. So you can care about education, you can care about health, you can care about economic development, you can care about um, crime. All of that has roots in housing and stability. That's it for episode one of The Nightly. Is there an event or issue in GR you think the Kelvin community should know about? Let us know by sending an email to the Chimes office. Special thanks to Sebastian Larson, Professor Holcomb, and Joshua Polanski, and Emmanuel Delianidis. 
And of course, Andrew Thomas and Professor Joe Kailama. I'm Sarah Brokoff. And I'm Olivia Dundalk. And this is The Nightly. You'll hear from us soon. Thank you.